The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, um, if you didn't pick up one of the handouts, there's handouts there, and um, the books. We have more of the books. If you didn't get a copy of the book, um, the handout is the the sort of flow through the text that we'll be taking today, and the um, the book contains the entire text that we're looking at today. So the um, the subject for our our study today is the Ataka Vaga, and it's um, widely considered to be one of the oldest discourses in the Pali Canon. And that's one of the reasons for its interest, that it's considered that it um, was actually composed fairly early in the time of the Buddhist teaching. So it's interesting from that standpoint because it may reflect some of the uh, earliest ways that the Buddha taught, not only the content but the style of the teaching. And also today, since we're such a small group, um, I'm happy to have it be kind of interactive. Um, You know, we don't have to have it be too formal. Um, So if if you'd like to ask a question, please do raise your hand because I may have a thought or something I want to complete before answering a question. So in terms of it being one of the oldest texts, Um, There's a couple, there's some evidence that supports this, so I'll just talk a little bit about that. Um, The main evidence that supports it is that there are several suttas in the Pali Canon proper that actually refer to this text. There's one one discourse in which uh, a monk is reciting the Atakavaga to the Buddha, and the Buddha uh, compliments him on his skill in reciting it. And I believe he also states that it's it's a very good text to memorize. So I think this text um, or this discourse was seen as a teaching tool in many ways, that it was a, a good text to, for monks to memorize um, when they went out into the forest. So there's three or so suttas that actually refer to this text and then there is another text in the Pali Canon called the Mahanidesa, which is actually a complete commentary on this text. It, it goes kind of word for word or word by word through the sutta. And the style of the Mahanidesa is um, basically it's like a glossary of terms. It takes various terms out of the Atakavaga and explains them. It says, this word means this set of things, and this word means this set of things. And in fact, nidesa means explanation or definition, something along those lines. So the maha nidesa is simply um, a compilation of terms of the Atakavaga. But the fact that there are several um, texts in the Pali Canon that actually refer to this discourse indicates that this discourse was composed at least prior to those 
uh, suttas, those, those parts of the canon, and maybe prior to other parts of the canon as well. The other evidence that supports the text being a fairly old discourse is that the language of the, the, the Pali that's used in this text is a, an older or more archaic style. So that also, uh, uh, you know, I don't actually know Pali, so I can't, um, can't speak to this, but as, as I've been reading all kinds of scholarly studies about this text, this is one of the main, um, the main reasons why it's seen to be one of the oldest texts, because of the, the type of Pali that's used in this, in this text. So widely through the scholarly community that those that study Buddhism and Buddhist texts for um, scholastic purposes, the Atakavaga, which is a portion of the Sutta Nipata, the Sutta Nipata is a compilation of several texts, maybe, I don't know how many suttas are in it, maybe about 10. Do you know, Tony, how many suttas are in the Sutta Nipata? Something, eight or 10? Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. So there's not many. It's a pretty small work. It, this is the Sutta Nipata. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's mostly poetry, actually. Um, so the, the, um, the Sutta Nipata, it, the, the Atakavaga is one Sutta out of the Sutta Nipata. So most of the um, scholars seem to believe that it is one of the oldest texts composed and that it does represent an early teaching of the Buddha. There are other opinions on this matter, Tan Jeff uh, in particular being one who has some other opinions on this, and he looks at those two bits of information and basically says, well, the first one about the um, what the the texts, other texts in the Pali Canon that refer to the Atakavaga, well, there's like three or so texts. And he says, well, it, you know, so the Atakavaga was composed before three texts in the Pali Canon. You know, that's, that's not a tremendous number. Um, and the other piece of evidence about the language, he points out that in general, poetry in the Pali Canon as a whole uses a more archaic form of Pali. And this entire text is poetry. So, you know, he, he feels that that also is not necessarily a reason why it was composed earlier in the, in the, in the Buddhist teaching. And also he points out that, that this is common throughout history, that you know, language of poetry tends to be more archaic than language of prose within the same, uh, that's written in the same time period. So I don't know, you know, I cannot really judge this. Um, I can imagine, actually, you know, when I think about the verses in the Pali Canon, um, I think many of them may be referring to uh, past teachings, but you know I don't know. So uh, I just put that out there as a um, an interesting fact 
about the age of the teachings. And um, in any case, I think that the teachings themselves are extremely interesting. Whether or not they're the oldest teachings of the Buddha, um, they are very interesting, and they are also very unusual for the Pali Canon. They, they speak in a way that um, is much more worldly, this-life-oriented than much of the Pali Canon. So it's, it's a very interesting teaching, and we'll be exploring uh, how it's different from the uh, the teachings of the rest of the canon and the stand, some of the standard Theravada views, and we'll explore the teaching of the Atakavaga in and of itself as well. So the text is relatively short. Um, it consists of verses 766 to... 975, so 210 or so verses. But it's very dense. And we're not going to be able to cover it completely. We're not going to go through it poem by poem or line by line. Instead, what I've decided to do is to explore several of the main themes of the Atakavaga and um, hope that you'll be interested enough for further explanation, (laughs) further exploration yourself. And if you are interested in further exploration of the Atakavaga, um, this entire sutta is in in Tan Jeff's book and you might be interested if... um, if you do want to make a further explanation at some point today to copy down the verse numbers, which I have figured out on this printed out copy. Um, Tan Jeff does not put the verse numbers in his texts, so it makes it a little hard to cross check with other translations. So if you are interested, you might just want to copy down the verse numbers or get a sense of what the verse numbers are. I'll leave this available for you to um, to make that transcription if you're interested. So my way of exploring a sutta is um, to explore what it means to me to, to read the text and actually to read several translations of the text. And for this class, I've been studying this text now for six months. Uh, I used three or four, four maybe translations I use Tan Jeff's translation quite a bit, as well as his notes. I used Norman's translation. He has an entire translation of the Sutta Nipata. Norman? K.R. Norman. <laughs> I used Sadatisa's translation. And I think these, these translations are fairly easy to get. These two are still uh, um, available readily. And then I used one that I found online by um, Bhikkhu Virado. 
And I found this through Wikipedia, believe it or not. Wikipedia had an article on the Atakavaga, and it pointed to this translation. And I found this to be one of the most readable of the translations. Many of the others were a little hard to, to read. So I kind of used this to get my own sense, my initial sense of the um, of what the meaning is. And then I would, would go to the other translations. The, I believe that Tan Jeff's translation and Norman's translations are the most accurate in terms of the, the actual Pali translation. And um, as Gil, Gil told me, he said, when I read translations, I'll always go to Norman because Norman is extremely accurate, although he's not a practitioner. Um, so, you know, the sense of the terms may not reflect the practice side, but um, the language is correct. So that's uh, an interesting point to know if you're interested in studying various suttas. The Bhikkhu Virata one I found to be very readable, um, and I could get a general sense, and, and I, that's, that's helpful for some of these um, more archaic forms of Pali in the translation. You know, Tan Jeff's translation, I think, is fairly accurate, but reflecting the form of the verses as it does, it's also a little hard to read. So um, so I think it's helpful to look at some other translations. Now, the, the Verado translation, unfortunately, some weeks after I pulled it off the site, disappeared. I can't find it anymore. <laughs> You tried? Yeah, I, I, can't, I can't find it anymore. But um, Verado, I believe, lives up in um, uh, Amravati. Oh, he lives at Amravati, it says. So I may write him at some point and see if it can be put back online. <laughs> um, but I, I, you know, if you're interested in it, I can loan you this copy or make a copy for you. Um, um, you know, because it's... Uh, this is the only copy I know of at the moment. <laughs> but I used, I used this one quite heavily, the Verado version. There's also several other versions out there. Um, three other versions I know of that I skimmed but didn't use as, as heavily. So the way I, I do it is I read the sutta. I go through the various translations, try to get an understanding for myself of what it means, and and then I start thinking about it with respect to, and as I do that, of course, I think about it with respect to what I already know from the Buddhist teachings, and I think about how it, how I may understand it through my experience. So I, you know, I go through it in kind of different levels in terms of study. So the Atakavaga is. Basically, it's 16 poems. And primarily, the subject of the Atakavaga is clinging. And how clinging gets in the way of peace and purity of mind. So in the um, standard Pali definition of clinging, there are four kinds of clinging. Clinging to sense, sense pleasure, clinging to precepts and practices, sometimes called rites and rituals, clinging to views, and clinging to um, identity view. 
I'll just give a brief, a brief. Is anybody not familiar with these four types of clinging? Familiar with what they are? I can give a little brief summary. Maybe I'll just do that just for the recording's sake. Um, so sense pleasure is pretty pretty easy to understand. That's the clinging to what's pleasurable. It's something that we all know. It's, it's a way that we all live our lives, essentially. We like things that are pleasant, we want them, and we hold on to them. So that's clinging to sense pleasure. It's, it's not the pleasure itself that's the issue here. It's the clinging to it, the holding on to it, the, the kind of demand that it stay. Clinging to precepts and practices is a basically a, a belief, clinging to a belief that a particular kind of action purifies us or uh, will lead us to freedom or liberation. So I believe in the Buddha's day there were um, certain kinds of practices that people did practice in this way. I think that bathing in the river Ganges was seen as a purifying and may even still to this day be seen as a very purifying thing, that that action itself purifies. Um, There was a a practice called the dog duty ascetic, where the um, practitioner behaved like a dog in all ways, eating food that was thrown to him, barking, crawling around on all fours, and again, believing that that would purify. So the... um, the clinging to the belief that any kind of action will purify, or actually ultimately to any kind of dharma, any kind of teaching. The clinging to any teaching is seen as something that gets in the way of our ultimate freedom. And that's a very interesting point, because it points to essentially that we can't even cling to the dharma, can't even cling to the Buddhist teachings. And we'll, we'll talk about that more uh, as we go on through the day. Clinging to views is basically all forms of views and opinions. Um, Views basically are, they're kind of like a filter on experience. They, um, and we'll talk a lot more about this too as we go on today. The views is one of the main topics I wanted to talk about. Basically, you know, we see our experience through our views about experience through our ideas or beliefs. It's as if, you know, our beliefs, our beliefs about experience kind of filter how we take in our reality. That if I believe that um, I'm, a, I'm a miserable person, then all of my experience or much of my experience will be filtered through that lens. And then there is um, identity view or personality view. This is basically view a view of who we are, a construction of an identity. And once we have an identity or a, a belief in who we are, there's a way in which uh, that limits us, in a sense. It limits us if, if we think that we are capable or not capable of some particular thing, that, that, that limits us in terms of, what we may or may not believe we can do. So this identity view 
filters again like it's it's a view so it behaves in the same way views do it filters our experience we we c- come up with an identity and then not only um um do we have this view that filters our experience we believe there's some way in which we need to protect that identity that it becomes almost uh, like a part of our body we're afraid of having it uh challenged or threatened in some way so the ataka vaga highlights two of these in particular it talks about all four of them but in particular it really highlights the clinging to sense pleasure and clinging to views and you know if i i uh, think about it the um beliefs and the rites and rituals and the identity view are basically forms of views that the rites and rituals is a view that a particular behavior will purify and the identity view is a view of self so i think that by focusing on views and sense pleasure the atakavaga really covers the entire range of the um teaching on clinging So I'd like to talk just a little bit about the structure of the Atakavaga since we're not going to go through it the whole thing. Basically, the Atakavaga has three main well it it covers it covers these two main pieces of view, clinging to views and clinging to sense pleasure and it does this in three main ways. It uh talks about the ordinary person and their relationship to clinging to views and sense pleasure it talks about the person who has become liberated become free from clinging and their relationship to views and desires so it it a large part of the teaching much of the teaching is simply descriptions of of people behaving in the world and whether they are um ordinary people or people who are in training essentially or whether they are uh, awakened people then there are the uh, the verses that describe training how one moves from being an ordinary person to being a, a a liberated person so it's fairly simple in structure and um there it, it's roughly it alternates the themes So the first couple of suttas are focused on sense pleasure, then there's a few suttas on views and then a few more suttas on sense pleasure, then a few more suttas on views and it just kind of goes back and forth like that. And then the last three suttas are really focused on the topic of training. How one moves from uh, one to the other. Now the theme of training is pulled throughout. You you'll find verses on training throughout the suttas. Uh but um that there's they're really focused in those last three. So in an exploration of this text if you choose to to study it yourself, you might take an interest in what each verse is doing. Is it talking about a person who's uh, on the path or um not yet awakened? Is it talking about a person who's awakened or is it talking about how to move from one to the other? so in terms of the um the content moving into the content a little bit more now there's a few themes i want to discuss 
First of all, I'd like to discuss a little bit about what the text has to say about being liberated. What does it have to say about that freedom of mind? Then I'd like to talk a little bit about the desire teachings and then about the views teachings. So that this roughly this morning, I'll talk about um, the liberation uh, teachings. What does it say about have to say about liberation? What does it have to say about desire and beginning to talk a little bit about views this morning and then the afternoon more on views. And then the last piece I want to talk about is how the Theravada tradition viewed this teaching, because as you'll see, as we move through this, um, it's it's more bare or in some ways a more radical teaching than the Theravada teaching, or it's radical from the perspective of the traditional Theravada teaching. Let's put it that way. So, so what does the text have to say about liberation? Given the way the text teaches that it focuses on people in the world and um, whether they are in training or already liberated, it primarily describes liberation in terms of people who have reached uh, liberation. So the descriptive qualities are very much things that people do or qualities that people have. So the first uh, sutta in the handout, well, we won't read this entire sutta, but this sutta is basically the first, the first um, verse basically is someone asking the Buddha, I want to ask you about the perfect man. Basically, tell me about someone who's liberated. These people we call men who are calmed. Can you tell me how they see things and how they behave? So it's very much a looking at how does a person who is liberated behave? How, are, how do they function? And just one, one um, point. In this translation, which is Satatisa's translation, the term calm translates the Pali Santi, S-A-N-T-I, which is also often translated as peace. So let's just read a few of these verses. Um, So 849 through 853, let's just go that far. A man who is calmed who has extinguished all his craving before the time his body disintegrates into nothing, who has no concern with how things began or with how they will end, and has no fixation with what happens in between, such a man has no preferences. So this is the first piece of the the, person has no preferences. He has no anger, no fear, and no pride. Nothing disturbs his composure, and nothing gives him cause for regret. He is a wise man who is restrained in speech. Again, very simple description. No anger, no fear, no pride. These are just qualities of a person, a normal human being. Well, a a very uh, free human being, but something that we can kind of recognize. He has no longing for the future and no grief for the past. There are no views or opinions that lead him. 
he can see detachment from the entangled world of sense impressions. He does not conceal anything, and there is nothing he holds on to. Without acquisitiveness or envy, he remains unobtrusive. He has no disdain or insult for anyone. He is not a man who is full of himself or a man who is addicted to pleasure. He is a man who is gentle and alert. With no blind faith, he shows no aversion to anything. So it goes on in this form. Um, and the thing, the thing that really stands out, I think, about this is that um, the primary way that this person is described is by what they have. They are not. So they're not angry. They're not prideful. They, they don't hold on to things. They have no grief for the past, no views or opinions that lead them, uh, no acquisitiveness, no envy, no disdain for people. So the primary description is what they have let go of. This, this reminds me of the... Um, oh, do you want to use the... <laughs> there's a... Uh, I wouldn't say a conflict, but there are two divergent interpretations of this, and one of them is this, this phrase, such a man has no preferences. It reminds me of the translation of the, that long poem... The great way is not difficult yes. for one who's not attached to preferences. And the whole discussion about nothing wrong with the preferences, just don't cling to them. So the clinging there is described as something that happens once the preferences show up. And here he's, he seems to be, um, is, is that second, is, is that not attached to preferences. That's the Philip Moffat version. Uh-huh. Is that the, ter- the current Theravadan line, or is, or is that just sort of what's floating around out there? You know, I'm not positive, but my sense is that that um, doesn't cling or to preferences is probably the Western interpretation of it. Um, you know, my read on the... The suttas is like, you know, that, that preferences are about liking and disliking and that that's got some clinging to it. So that the clinging is the preference. The preference is the clinging. Yeah. So that's my understanding of that. Um, now, it, it, I think that it is. And, and what this text, I think, really does go to, we'll see over and over that this text is not a, uh, a world denying text. It doesn't, over and over it talks about how people live in the world and are free. So it's not, um, you know, retreat from the world, escape from the world, move into, you know, complete detachment from the world. It's about being free within the world. So, you know, it is the pleasure, the pleasant and unpleasant can be there and, you know, interacting with sense pleasure, but the clinging to it leading to preferences, or the preferences being a manifestation of the clinging. Yeah. There are a few in this um, text, a few positive descriptions of a person who is free. So they are like calmed or peaceful, which is that term, shanti. Um, then in verse um, 853, Gentle, alert. A little further down, I believe, there's 
a wise, mindful, even-minded. So there are a few, a very few positive descriptions, but mostly it's about uh, what they have let go of. Throughout the Atakavaga as a whole, the, there, there are a few of these positive descriptions. Um, there's peace is, is one of the main ones. Um, secure, uh, seclusion is another one. And there's some verses I, I have in the next, the next page, some verses that describe some of the positive qualities of someone who is liberated. So peaceful. Verse 914, he's peaceful amidst all things, whether seen, heard, or thought. So again, it is talking about the quality of being awake within the world, peaceful amidst things, peaceful amidst seeing, hearing, thinking. The the next one, knowing the cooling of desire as peace. And again, this is the same term that's translated as calm in, in sutta, the sutta that we just read, knowing the cooling of desire as peace. So that's a little bit more, um, it's again still in the world because the cooling of desire happens in the world. That that, that uh, action of mind, letting go of desire, results in the peace. So here it's equating essentially the release from desire with the goal of the path, the peace. Purity is another term that's often used for this quality of, is a quality of someone who is liberated. So one who is pure has no preconceived view about anything in the world. Purity, I like the term purity in some way because when we think of pure, you know, like if we have a pure glass of water, it means there's nothing extra in it. There's nothing extra in that water. So that's what purity is. And many times in talking about purity in the um, this teaching, it talks about that one who is pure is not pure because of adding anything. That it is only through the letting go of things that purity comes. So again, this is again kind of the, the pointing to the non-clinging through this term of purity. Knowing and wisdom are seen to be as important qualities or Qualities that manifest in someone who is liberated. One of great wisdom who has penetrated the Dhamma. And this is contrasted with a person who is bound to ideas, a person who is bound to ideas and undertaking religious observances goes high to low. But one of great wisdom who has penetrated Dhamma does not go high to low. And there's no particular description of what high to low means. Um, but it's a kind of a felt sense I get of somebody who is pulled down into 
the mire of struggle. In discovering, he is a knower of the highest. Having found Dhamma, he is emancipated. So it's, it, the knowing here is talking about knowing the Dhamma, knowing the truth. Now this, this is an interesting thing, actually. All of these terms, uh, well, let's just talk about seclusion first, this last one. A person who does not cling to the future nor sorrow over the past, who finds seclusion amidst sense contacts and is not led astray by views. So again, it's talking about, here it's not talking about physical seclusion from the world. It's talking about seclusion amidst the world. Many of these terms here that, we are, that we're looking at as describing someone who is liberated in the Atakavaga, there are times when these same terms are used to describe someone who is caught. And this is one of the interesting pieces about this text, that there seem to be some paradoxes or seem to be some uh, koans almost to, uh, to work with. So the quality of knowing at times is seen to be... Um, a manifestation of someone who's liberated, and at times it seems to be um, describing someone who is caught by their knowledge. So it's uh, it's something we'll explore a little bit more later on. But just so that you know, these terms, as we um, as we use them here, they're not used consistently through the text in terms of when you see the term. You know, one who is pure, you need to really look at the context to see whether it's talking about someone who is fully liberated or someone who is caught by their own idea of purity. So that's an important piece in the exploration of this text. One way to explore the text in these terms is um, Tan Jeff makes this suggestion, and I followed it in my own reading to read through the text with an eye to whether the verse is describing, again, there there are these these modes of description, whether it's describing someone who is liberated or someone who is training to be liberated. And the terms, again, the terms of people, sometimes there's um, Brahman, Muni, Muni meaning the silent one, um, I believe there's some other terms, the secluded one. There's several terms that refer to someone who is liberated. But again, an expert, that's sometimes used, someone who has a lot of knowledge, expert. Um, these terms are used both ways. They are used to refer to somebody who is, well, they're actually used in three ways. They're used to refer to somebody who is in training. They're used to refer to somebody who's fully liberated. And they are also at times used to refer almost with like quotes around them, a so-called expert or a so-called pure person. So that, that um, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting to read this text because there's so many ways in which it engages your, uh, your thinking around what is actually being said here. Mm-hmm. Um, I do not know of another text that does it, but I cannot say that it's completely peculiar. I've I've not really seen it 
Well, there are some places where it does talk about the other, some of the other views that people hold, but it, it, it's not, it's not quite so stark in this way of, um, that I, that I know of, but I, I definitely can't say that for sure. Yeah. Could you, excuse me. Could you say a little bit more about seclusion? I didn't quite get the the difference between being secluded from the world, but so you said it's not about being secluded from the world. So what is seclusion pointing to? Seclusion is, is essentially pointing to not clinging to sense experience. So that as our sense experience comes in, what was the the who finds seclusion amidst sense contact. And there's, there's other suttas that talks about um, not adhering to what is seen, heard, cognized, not um, clinging to what is seen, heard, cognized, not, the other translation, not being stained by what is seen, heard, cognized. And that, I, I think, is what um, it's pointing to by seclusion, that the sense contacts come in. It's almost like Gil sometimes talk about Teflon mind, you know, that um, when sense experience comes in, it doesn't stick to anything. It doesn't, um, it doesn't um, catch on views or opinions or an eye or a mind. So it's secluded from uh, the suffering. And that's maybe a good way to look at it. Secluded from the suffering of uh, clinging to sense contact. That's my, under- that's my understanding of what seclusion means. So it's not, it's not about, it's pretty clearly not about, not necessarily about going off to a cave and just isolating yourself. Although he does, he does encourage that for his monks. I have to say, he does encourage that. (laughs) I'm planning to go and visit family in a few days. So I'm thinking about the notion of being secluded from the views of others, um, you know, being in the world and interacting with other people, how does one, you know, I don't think I can formulate this very well, but it's the kind of the notion of taking in what other people are saying. I guess I'm getting confused about how how do you interact with others and still be secluded. It's, I think it's about, um, I think it really all comes down to I, you know, looking at it, it comes down to um, can we be with people and not have what they're saying bring up a me, I, identity that has to be protected or defended, that there is a seclusion essentially from um, from suffering that would go into getting uh, puffed up or feeling contracted around who I am. So it's, it's, it's about, I think it's really about just allowing things to come in but not to stick, to not, not to cling. And I think probably it is probably the most difficult interactions with other people. It's maybe a little bit easier walking around the woods by yourself. (laughs) 
So the thing that I really want to highlight here, just point to, is that these ways of describing someone who is liberated do not represent some kind of abstract idea or transcendent reality. They, they are, it, they're described in terms of the qualities of a person so that it's not uh, metaphysical, it's not transcendent, it's very much here and now. The description of freedom in the Atakavaga is very much in this world. So it does emphasize freedom in this life. It emphasizes the possibility for freedom in this life. And for the Theravada, we'll go into this a little more later, for the, from the standard Theravada pers- perspective, this is kind of um, an unusual teaching. It doesn't say much about transcendent reality. There's a, we'll go into this later. It talks maybe has a few places that could be uh, considered as talking about transcendent reality. It has a very this-worldly emphasis. So if we, if we go back to um, verse 914, he's peaceful amidst all things, whether seen, heard, or thought. A person who does not, uh, who finds seclusion amidst sense contact. And this contrasts fairly strongly with the standard Theravada view of someone who's liberated, which describes, um, or the standard Theravada view of someone who is liberated is described as someone who has essentially gotten off the round of rebirth. That uh, the notion of being reborn over and over again and becoming free of that cycle is one of the main benefits of becoming liberated. And the Atakavaga does not address this so much. It doesn't speak much about rebirth, if at all. Um, and again, we'll, we'll talk much more about that later, but I just want to really highlight the this-worldly teaching of the Atakavaga. And, and that it does contrast with the standard Theravada description. Do you want to say more now? Well, just just offhand, I don't see the the contrast or the. Uh, you see what I mean? Ah, okay. Um, For me, it it seems the same. Well, the the. Um, I, there are there's it kind of opens up a whole um, set of questions that have to be understood if one also thinks about the f- freedom from clinging as free, as having a metaphysical component as as essentially altering the metaphysical or the um, transcendent experience of a person that it's not something that can be directly pointed to in this life it's something that Maybe some say that they can experience those transcendent experiences um, um, and, and you're using getting off the wheel as yes. transcendent well the right? the 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 idea that i mean if if there is in the ter- standard Theravada view the clinging basically. Um, the manifestation of clinging is that we cling when we die to the next life and that we are reborn. 
and that the abandoning of clinging is the abandoning of that next birth. Um, and so that the, the essentially uh, most people, the normal people, just go on being reborn over and over again. And that if um, they, they are free of clinging, that it alters the manifestation of their uh, their being. I mean, it actually changes something fundamentally in their being that they would no longer be reborn. So that it's a it's a it's a it somehow changes the whole nature of hum- of what it means to be human to become liberated. I mean, I would add or go a little farther and say if your goal is to not be reborn, how otherworldly can you get? (laughs) I mean, instead of being something attainable in this life, the goal is not to have a life at all in the usual sense. And then, of course, then you get fuzzy. Well, what's usual sense? I mean, a life without clinging might not be a usual sense. (laughs) But still in all, you know, I mean, if taken pretty literally, rebirth as the fundamental, or the freedom from rebirth as the fundamental goal, what, what you're really aspiring to, what the arahants have achieved, means that whatever they, what, <laughs> you know, you can't use words to talk about it, which is the problem, but, but whatever it is you're aspiring to, it's something that's outside this world, and to yes. me that's inherently yes. otherworldly, so it's kind of, conflicts with, you know, the two points you were making about, you know, the goal here is something that we can experience in this life and not some transcendent reality that in some sense is somewhere else. So, I mean, I I had a lot of trouble with this last year with the Majima study group and I'm not resolved at all <laughs> and you know I, I, my, my preference is very definitely freedom from clinging sounds cool the descriptions of nirvana do not sound cool to me they sound <laughs> like you might as well be once and for all dead I mean because essentially you are well just just as a go ahead Chris but let me just say one thing you know the description in um, I think it's in the Majima Nikaya um, Somebody is asking about this very thing. And what happens to someone who's enlightened when they die? You know, are they reborn? Well, reborn, do they, do they reappear? No, well, reappear doesn't apply. Well, do they not reappear? Well, not reappear doesn't apply. Do they both reappear and not reappear? Well, that doesn't apply. Well, do they neither reappear or not reappear? That doesn't apply. And the guy says, well, I'm confused. You know, <laughs> what does it mean? <laughs> and so the Buddha resorts to an analogy, which I won't, I won't go into, but it's not, I mean, I think that typically we think about that description as a form of annihilation. And the Buddha said it's not annihilation. So what is it? I don't know. Again, it sounds kind of transcendent. It sounds kind of otherworldly. Definitely not in the life we're living in. <laughs> Go ahead, Chris. Oh, I was just going to point back to the verse you already read here where it says, a man who has extinguished all cravings before the time his body disintegrates into nothing such a man has no preferences. And you can so easily imagine Theravadan texts going on to say, we'll never be born again and yes. so forth. So that sort of, you know, it points right back to how he is before his body disintegrates, not after. That's true. Thank you so. for, for, for recognizing that one. 
Steve. Uh-huh. Also, uh, Tom Jeff is, is constantly talking in the teachings. There's the, there's the personal and there's the transcendent of the teachings that one can look at. We're always birthing certain identities. When we, you know, let's say you go see your family and you're birthing being a son or a brother or something, and that dies. So the personal level and the transcendent level. And also the Buddha even talks about, you know, do you believe in rebirth and not believe in rebirth? He says to the person, does it really matter? If you, what are the implications of your behavior if you don't believe in rebirth? And they would still do good actions because they don't want to suffer. And then if you do believe in rebirth, well, then have a better rebirth or you may not be reborn or something. So mm-hmm. Either way, he always looked at both sides, the personal and the transcendent. Mm-hmm. That's true, um, and that's a piece. I, I will talk about that a little more later, so I don't want to get too into the afternoon's discussion now. Um, like, but, yeah. I don't want to Uh, I guess for me, there's just not a difference. It, for me, it's both. It's, it's the freedom in this very life, which also means you know, future lives. Well, I'll talk about that also later. Okay. <laughs> and, and the image that came to my mind, I don't remember what the Buddha's metaphor was at that point, the part that, that you recited, but the metaphor or the image that works for me, somehow I was just thinking about it this morning, is the wave in the ocean. You know, there's a wave in the ocean. Um, the wave is seen briefly and then goes, but nothing changes. You know, did, did the wave disappear? Well, <laughs> but it didn't change. The water didn't change. It's mm-hmm. the same. So, um, pretty much where, uh, oh, is my, is my mic on still? Is it going? Okay. I, I'm not hearing myself anymore. It, no, that's okay. It's good. <laughs> but I just wanted to make sure it's, uh, it's going. Um, one of the scholars, I'll just close this section around talking about these liberation um, teachings. Uh, one of the scholars on this kind of summarizes this. This is uh, Luis Gomez. The Atakavaga sets out to describe a practical solution to human sorrow, not merely the abstract sorrow of rebirth, but the everyday sorrow of strife and aggression. So that's really where the, the Atakavaga lands, is in the everyday reality. <laughs> 